It certainly is, again, a very marked privilege that we've each been given to assemble on the peaceful shades of this Sunday afternoon, isn't it? To understand, of course, that our God is the one that rules within the kingdoms of men, and He has, in fact, seen it fit in accordance to His will to permit us to assemble in the way we are tonight. We do so for the express desire to magnify and glorify Him. And these songs that Brother Glenn has just led us in, in so many ways, have highlighted the Holy Scriptures haven't you and I sung about give me the Bible? And aren't you and I still so thrilled to sing a song like that one? Most recently, of course, we sang about how shall the young secure their hearts and again centering our thoughts on the value and majesty of the Bible. Speaking of those things, we continue our study tonight as we contemplate the making of the Bible. We come to Lesson 5 tonight in this uh, somewhat brief series of lessons reminding ourselves of some of the interesting developments that occurred sometimes so very long ago that nonetheless have been within accordance of the things of God and has led to the blessed scriptures that you and I so readily can appreciate, study, and read today. Perhaps that being said, this opening slide, in many ways at least, reminds us ever so briefly of what some of those other lessons have been. I would just ask you to notice we devoted that opening lesson to a reminder of just how special and just how unique the Bible really is. It is the Word of God. It is fully inspired and fully authoritative. And as such, it is without error and without discrepancy. After building upon that, we readily used it to highlight how sweetly loved it should be by you and by me. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day to note Psalm 119, verse 97. Following that, we begin to turn our attention to the invention, if you please, of writing and how that the time came when God saw fit that His Word would not simply be transmitted orally but that it would be copied down and written for the general benefit of so many individuals. Case in point, the Old Testament. We looked in some detail at the manuscripts, those original autographs of the Old Testament, and appreciated the incredible effort by some to transmit and copy them through the ages. Following that, last week we came to the New Testament and looked at some of the initial features about those marvelous autographs as well. As we begin to look at them, they prepare us for a continuation, really, of that New Testament study tonight. Speaking of that, we come to the bottom in which we already looked at some of the original features and the names that were given to those autographs. You may remember the codex uh, that, that, of course, is still called the, the Vatican Manuscript, the uh, manuscript attached to Mount Sinai, or at least that name that goes with it. But aside from all of them, what else about the New Testament? And those initial documents should well come within our study tonight. This next slide takes us to this observation. Let us look again at what the New Testament books themselves say about the writings as they were originally put together. As we look at some of these verses, I believe they'll be strongly reminding to you and to me about what we should appreciate concerning the preserving and providential power of God as these 27 books have been preserved for us. At the top of that slide, I might ask you to notice that first of all, the New Testament makes references to scriptures. Do you remember on one occasion when Jesus very pointedly spoke to some within his hearing of that occasion in John 5 verses 39 and following and he told them search the scriptures 
For in them you think you have the words of life. You and I recognize that as he used that word scripture, he employed it in a very powerful way, the word graphe. Not just any arbitrary writings, but some writings, of course, held a very strong status of not only being special, but being presented and revealed by God. You'll notice later in Acts 17, 11, a high commendation of one of the congregations there on that particular second missionary journey. As Paul addressed them, he said, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Here was a congregation of people, the Berean Church of Christ, if you will. And as he addressed them, he highlighted that they searched the Scriptures daily. Maybe it would be fair for you and me to initially note when that word Scripture is employed in places like that, might we ask, what Scriptures did they have? This was before the full completion of the New Testament. In fact, it was before perhaps the assembling of very many of the New Testament books as you and I now have them. Those things are reminding us that when the New Testament makes a reference to that, those scriptures to which they referred is what you and I would call the Old Testament. Those Jews in John 5, when Jesus said, You search the scriptures, for in them you will find evidences of me, that was Old Testament prophecies referring to Jesus. They didn't yet have the New Testament as you and I have it. That text in Acts 17, that church in Berea, that too was so highly complimented for searching the Scriptures daily. That again was long before the fullness of all the 27 New Testament books was written. But within those Old Testament books, there was sufficient evidence, sufficient revelation from the God of heaven pointing them to the coming of a Messiah, the pointing of the one who should come and save them from sin, the one who would be the very one from God, the Christ. As they were so highly commended to search those scriptures, notice what comes next. By now we're beginning to appreciate that the time, of course, of the Old Testament with the death of Christ on the cross and with, of course, the putting in place of the gospel, the time surely was soon going to become then when a new set of writings would need to be put in place. The so-called new covenant, the new gospel, if you please. And with that, you and I, of course, appreciate that second statement. And you and I can think of many blessed reasons and many tremendous motivations that would surround having this gospel, of course, put into writing. It would facilitate study. It would facilitate a greater element in evangelism. After all, only the apostles had the power to lay on their hands and transmit the Holy Spirit. And thus, only they had the power thus to equip others by the miraculous gift of prophecy. But you'll notice that depended on having an apostle and there were only a few of them. But how great it would be when this gospel was committed to writing. No wonder then that brings us to appreciate a number of additional features. This is now the bottom half of that slide. That particular set of writings that you and I noted a moment ago from Luke chapter 1, I would ask you to revisit that passage. It has much to say to the very topic before us this evening. The first four verses of Luke's gospel account. It says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, 
Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee, in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. There are a number of things about that that probably now capture our attention in ways that it didn't before we began this series of studies. Might I ask you to notice even how verse 1 begins, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration, Luke immediately makes note that many such documents now exist. Many individuals have taken it upon themselves to compile these documents You'll notice in light of what Luke records for us, these must have been some kind of a gospel account, some kind of a record of the life of Jesus Christ, some kind of record detailing at least some of the features of that which he taught and perhaps that which he did. Luke says to Theophilus, many of these documents already exist. Somebody had written them down. I might ask you to note with some interesting care what might these documents have been. You and I today have four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As you and I now appreciate them, it seems pretty clear John was written after Luke. So that couldn't have been one of them to which he referred. And furthermore, it appears that Matthew was at the very least contemporaneous with Luke. So likely that is not in the list either. Perhaps Mark is one of them. It does seem like that one was written before Luke. But if that be true, you'll notice that Luke uses the word many, so there were many other documents besides just Mark. Isn't that interesting? And the fact is, the Holy Spirit has seen fit to preserve virtually none of them. We have Mark written before Luke, and that's it. We don't have any of the other ones. Isn't it amazing that the God of heaven equipped Luke in such a way he went on to say this, "...even as they delivered them unto us," verse 2, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and minister the word, now he says it seemed good to me also. In addition to these other documents to which you might have access, Theophilus, he says it seemed good to me also to prepare one. And verse 3 says it like this, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. Luke places a high commendation on this gospel account in that he says to Theophilus, I've had perfect understanding. I have been equipped by my own personal study and research as well as the equipping from the Holy Spirit to prepare this document that in order sets forth the certainty of those things, verse 4, which you have received. I believe all of us can take a great deal of comfort in that word certainty. What Luke put together by the authority of the Holy Spirit is not something about which Theophilus could have any ambiguity. It is not that he could have any question about the thoroughness and the veracity of that which Dr. Luke put together. Isn't that a marvelous preface to the gospel account you and I know as Luke? No wonder then as we consider the 24 chapters of this book... We have an order about the things, of course, of the life of Christ, His teachings, and the way in which He impacted the nature of those apostles. Surely, in light of those things, I might ask you to notice another idea I've asked you to appreciate at the bottom. 
these things that you and I notice in verse number 4. Notice again the nature of the word certainty. I believe you and I are quick to say that those who are eyewitnesses often occupy a very noteworthy stance as being reliable, as being trustworthy. Now, you and I appreciate that Luke had an especial appreciation of being in place with some noteworthy individuals. He was an absolute companion of Paul. In fact, he was not only the companion on the second missionary journey, but also it would appear at least part of the third. For thus many months and even years, he was a close associate of the Apostle Paul. As such, we know Paul, of course, was an associate of Peter and others. And Luke had an opportunity to thus equip himself and to examine the eyewitness accounts of many others. Not only that, might you notice the statement of John 16, 13 about that special equipping of those apostles. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He shall guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but the things which He shall see, that shall He speak. You'll notice that speaking of those apostles, they were, of course, supernaturally guided into all truth. And Luke had access to much of that. Not that he was an apostle, I'm not saying that. But he had access to those that were. Surely, that leads us to notice one special statement that Peter makes note of in 2 Peter 1.16. Peter identifies himself as an eyewitness of those events on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter says he heard the voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son. Peter heard it. He could share that information with others, and that ultimate information could, of course, make its way to Luke. Maybe in light of those things we've seen, the blessedness of these four gospel accounts we have, and they apparently were not even all that Luke had reference to here. What else might we mention as well? In addition to that particular thought, notice this set of statements. Think about with me for just a moment the magnificent growth of the church. When Jesus died in the spring of A.D. 30, he was put to death, of course, on that old cross. And you and I know that just a very few weeks later, the church began. Now, there was roughly 3,000 that became members that day to, of course, add to the apostles. And we noticed two chapters later, the number had grown to 5,000 in Acts 4, verse 2. And as the book of Acts proceeds, many other references telling us the Word of God grew and multiplied. Acts, 20, Acts 12, verse number 24. Acts chapter 19, verses 20 and following, all provide examples. As you and I think about the greatness of that growth, would you now consider some of the aspects of the time frame about these books? I would ask you to notice. Think about how much mileage there is. The city of Jerusalem exists, of course, in a place you and I know very well. But yet, less than 30 years later, Paul wrote letters to congregations that were already very well in existence in far distant places like Asia Minor in Greece. How did the church grow over that many miles that fast? Could it be that not only was there, of course, word of mouth, and there was, of course, the guidance of the apostles, 
But could it be there were already individuals putting together some of these writings that you and I have studied? They haven't been preserved for us. Records of the life of Christ, and maybe Luke referred to some of them. But already documents that could fortify the faith of some and strengthen them in the characteristic of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe there were these documents. But at the very least, you and I can notice the New Testament does make other references to certain writings. Would you please note these with me? Texts such as Colossians 4 verse 16. Right near the close of that Colossian letter, Paul wrote to the church in Colossae and he made reference to another epistle. It was the epistle written to the Laodiceans. You and I know very well there is no New Testament book called the book of Laodiceans. We've got Philippians and we've got other books like Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians. There is no book of Laodiceans. Apparently, though, there was an epistle. And Paul had written it to them and it was for their benefit and their edification. But the Holy Spirit has not seen fit to preserve it for us. There was a writing, though. Look at another example in Revelation 1, verse number 3. We notice at the outset of that last book in the Bible, references made to the fact that blessed are they who hear, who read, and who obey that which is in these writings. There were documents in existence. And as those documents were shared from congregation to congregation, it was a blessing for them to be able to hear the sweetness of those words of the gospel. You could just imagine how it may have developed. Maybe a particular congregation like the church in Ephesus. We have just received this week from a messenger the document written to the Laodicean church and we need to have it read today. And as a part of their worship, what you and I would call the book of the Laodiceans was read before the church in Ephesus. After that, maybe it then began, made its way to the church in Philippi and they heard it read. And maybe after that, the church at Thessalonica and they heard it read. This was apparently the means whereby God intended His Word to be shared. Some of those books, of course, you and I still have, but some of them we don't. Maybe in light of that, you'll notice there were some additional references. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 9, Paul makes reference in the heart of that book to another letter written to the church in Corinth. When you and I open our New Testament, we come to the book of 1 Corinthians and perhaps it occurs to us that's the first letter that Paul had ever written them. But apparently that isn't so. Because that verse informs us that he had already previously written to them some document in which he instructed them about matters related to fornication. But the Holy Spirit has not seen fit to preserve that first one for us. Or perhaps you and I can note 2 Corinthians 2 verse 3. It would appear that there is yet another reference to yet a different book written to the Corinthians. And if that be true, he wrote them four of them and we've got two still in our New Testament. I would simply say that God's overruling providence made available some written documents. And the first century brethren were blessed to have them. You and I can rest assured that these 27 he has seen fit to preserve for us instill within it the fullness of whatever the truth was in those others. And can't we be thankful for all the assurances that we have of these 27 books? Speaking of some of those things you might notice, the following statements near the bottom of that slide I think are very valuable. Valuable in the following sense. 
Sometimes you and I will encounter the word canon, C-A-N-O-N. Now, I know it sounds just like the kind of thing you use to fire an artillery shell in war, C-A-N-N-O-N, but the word's very different. This one only has one N in it, C-A-N-O-N. That is one of those words that has reference to the so-called canonical writings and that is used in, a, in, a, in a, an exclusive way to refer to those writings that are highlighted and considered and respected as authoritative and inspired. So in other words, for you and me, the New Testament, 27 books are canonical. Others are not. Even if some of those ancient people that you and I know of well in the first century, they may have written some good things, but they are not canonical. Well, one wonders, so how did certain books came to be canonical and other books are not? We've just now made reference to many other writings. Some of them, of course, were no doubt beneficial and useful, but they were not considered canonical. Who made the decision of what books go into this Bible and what books didn't? Who made that decision? When did they make it and how did they make it? I think all of us would readily agree if our soul's salvation is depending on what books ended up in this, in this book we call the Bible. And if books should be here which are not, you and I are in desperate measures indeed. Let's go ahead then and at least for the, a few moments think about how books came to be considered canonical and how books came to be considered non-canonical. You'll notice as we come to the bottom, the very first thing you and I should say is it is indeed true that there were various church councils throughout the ages. Councils that convened and met. Sometimes they were in response to certain governmental threats. Sometimes they were in response to particular issues and problems. Not any of those councils determined what books are in our Bible. None of them. None of those councils, no matter what their particular mission was, it was not for the purpose of determining what books are in the Bible. I realize sometimes you and I may hear someone say that, well, the books of the Bible were determined as a result of the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. That's not true. When that council convened and met, the books of the Bible had long since been determined by then. It was not the work of that council to fix that. I might say that in light of that, sometimes there are those who will levy a charge. Well, after all, didn't the Roman church, didn't the Catholic church determine what books are in the Bible? The answer is no. Catholic church never determined it. No council ever determined it. Let's weave together a picture if it would seem how God made sure that happened. We've already talked about these books. Some of them the Holy Spirit has preserved for us, and some of them have not been preserved. But the fact of the matter is, those particular books or autographs that had been compiled, there was in a sense a system of checks and balances. And it was a very interesting arrangement that was within the confines of what God had put in place. Remember, there were inspired individuals at the time and there were individuals equipped by the God of heaven with miraculous gifts. There were also individuals, of course, who were apprised of the truth. You and I know that because the apostles were. Think then about what could have happened. As a particular document arrived, 
this church has received a document from some particular source and we wish it to be read. As soon as that was read, those who knew the truth would have recognized it as a forgery immediately. They would have immediately known because it would not have harmonized with the truth that they had received and that which they knew. They would have discounted that immediately and would not have considered it as a matter of doctrine. It would not have been treated as canonical. It wouldn't have taken very long for certain writings to have occupied a very special stature. Books like Romans, books like 1 Thessalonians, books like 1 Peter, books like Colossians. And as those were shared and read and they were recognized as being fully in harmony with everything the apostles had taught, everything that faithful brethren had appreciated, they would have been widely accepted. It would have been long before they would have come to be considered canonical. They would no longer have been questioned or would not have had any opportunity to wonder about the nature of what was in them. I might say that as you think about the character of those books, you and I now know what the conclusion of that was. The early brethren found 27 books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 2 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. Those books were found to be in complete and utter harmony with that which was God's revealed will from heaven. The brethren, under the guidance of the individuals of the time, in their acceptance, lifted them to the status of being canonical. And, of course, we today are still the recipients of those canonical writings. Those 27 books, then, are far different from so many other writings that may well have been apparent in the first century. Because, after all, archaeologists and others who have studied it have found dozens, yea, dozens of additional books to these 27 but you'll notice those others were never considered canonical. They were never admitted into the sacred text of Scripture. Now, sometimes brethren, as nearly as I was able to tell, might encourage them for consideration, but only in the essence of a benefit, never to be treated on an equal par with, with Scripture. Maybe you and I today could consider it just as helpful writings in some sense, but not equal to Scripture. For example, as you look at additional gospel accounts, and again, I use that word with care, not as if it's a canonical gospel account, but here's just a selected few of them. Throughout the years, various other books have been found, such as the gospel according to Thomas, the gospel according to Philip, the gospel according to Judas Iscariot. All of those documents exist, and many additional ones as well. But you and I notice not a single one of our New Testaments has the gospel according to Judas Iscariot in it. Not a single one of them have the gospel according to Philip in it. There's good reason. Those are not canonical doc documents. They were never considered equal to those 27 books you and I enjoy in the New Testament. In fact, I might ask you, one of the litmus tests of any such book would be this. Does what those books contain harmonize with these? There are many times the answer is no. For example, you might find it interesting that the gospel of Judas Iscariot is particularly unusual. 
in that particular book, Judas is carried as the one lifted high as, in fact, the finest of the apostles. He is lifted high as, in fact, the only one who really understood Jesus, who really only understood the fullness of the gospel. All the others never understood it as thoroughly as he. Now, that flies directly in the face of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And thus, that book never was considered on an equal footing to those other four. Notice, in addition to that, some of those supposed gospel accounts really do cast a spotlight on some interesting arenas in the life of Jesus. Now, please listen. I'm not by any way asserting the truthfulness of this, but this is what's in some of those other gospel accounts. You and I know well that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a particular area of Jesus' life that is nearly not mentioned at all is the early part of his life. What was Jesus like as a little boy? What was he like when he was age 9 or age 10 or age 14? The New Testament just doesn't say much. Many of these other, quote, gospel accounts, that's where they cast their focus. Here's what one of them says. At the age of seven, one of these other gospel accounts described Jesus as playing much like any little boy would. But notice what he did. He used some mud to make some animals, but Jesus could make the animals fly and He could make the animals move on their own. Now, does that sound like a trustworthy, reliable, realistic account of the gospel? Well, of course not. It's more of a fanciful kind of thing, isn't it? In addition to that, you might notice, in these other gospel accounts, if I might call them with any kind of a description like that, Jesus is many times presented very temperamentally, meaning His temper He loses and He often acts rather rashly. That doesn't sound like Jesus either. Not the Jesus that you and I, of course, appreciate and love so much. Maybe in light of all those things, if you're ever then faced, at least with others who might refer to these books, may we remember they are not canonical, never were they considered as such. Not only are there these other accounts that would fall into a consideration like that. Look at the bottom of the slide, please. There are other books known as Acts. You and I know in the New Testament we have only one book of Acts. That's not the only one in existence, though. There's a book called the Acts of Paul. And there's a book called the Acts of Andrew. And notice the word etc. because there are other books. They have been found. One more time, never were they considered canonical. The early church, with the litmus test of inspiration and testworthiness, never considered those books reliable. And they have not been preserved for us in a canonical fashion either. What about epistles? There are all kinds of other epistles, as you and I might call them. But again, they were never regarded as trustworthy books in the Bible. I've only listed a couple. The so-called epistle of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is a character in the book of Acts. And if you and I can learn much about his work as an encourager. But as far as an inspired book written by him, the Holy Spirit knows nothing of it. Furthermore, there's the so-called Shepherd of Hermas. Now this one is actually mentioned very often, sometimes in the ancient writings, but one more time, it is not a canonical book. Surely in light of all those things, we come to the bottom and note this. 
this is not a complete statement, but at least it is a reasonable one on occasion. Many of these extra-biblical books are nonsensical, and they're contradictory to the Word of God. And sometimes you may well appreciate the fact we should ever recollect none of them are inspired. That is to say, with the intent of God for them to have been considered canonical, surely in light of all that, only a few comments remain. And as we come to this particular feature tonight, I would like to at least for a moment speak about one last time the grandeur of these books we do have. And by that I mean the canonical ones. I hope among other things we have an extraordinarily special view of just how great they are. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 in the New these are the exclusive ones that present the authorized will from heaven. Although there are multitudes of additional books throughout the ages that have at least listed religious instruction, and there are still many, these 66 are extraordinary. They are canonical. With that appreciation in mind, you and I understand so easily that these next statements then should perhaps lead us to a couple of verses. These books are described in language like this. All Scripture is given by God. Now that's the very text of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given from God. It's breathed from Him. It is directly provided by Him. In addition to that, an unforgettable text in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. All things have been revealed. You and I will never need to worry, never need to lie awake at night wondering whether there's some missing information. All of it has been revealed. All of it has been presented. All of it has been preserved. And all of it is available to you and to me. God has been so good to us in that regard. And of course, it is His will that He has seen fit to preserve in that fashion and in that way. I would invite you to notice then that there are no lost books in the Bible. None. And yet I realize that every few years, a book will skyrocket to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, claiming to have a lost book in the Bible. It probably hadn't been more than, oh, what, 10 years ago now that Dan Brown wrote one related again to Mary Magdalene and others, and folks just ate it up. It is not a canonical writing. It does not present the authorized will of heaven. It might be a nice fiction book, but that's all it is. Surely, in light of those things, Revelation 22, verses 19 and following, close the Bible, close the entirety of the Word of God, and it does so with this final reminder. Don't add to the words of the prophecy of this book. And don't take anything away from the words of the prophecy of this book. It's as if there was a boundary affixed and erected. A boundary that highlighted the fact that this closes it. Now those statements there in Revelation appear to directly discuss the nature of that book. But isn't there a principle at work? A principle highlighting for us that the canonical character of the 27 books closes once and for all 
inspired writing. Isn't it interesting how wonderful it would have been if 600 years later when Muhammad lived, when he started teaching about additional writings, if someone had stood up and said, I don't think so. There are no more canonical writings, and whatever you have to say that contradicts them is not to be seriously taken. Or what if others came along as in the 19th century and made the same statement not long ago about golden plates hidden in New York? Men would have known. Men would have known. And there wouldn't have been any confusion like rests and is so wildly rampant today. These 66 books close the canon of Scripture. With that, we come to the bottom and notice one final time, men didn't determine what books are in the Bible. God did that. And can't we be thankful? As we close this lesson tonight, we do so with just a very few reminders, recalling to us the blessing that is the Bible, the wonderful features that are found, of course, in it, and the trustworthiness that you and I can give to it. Of course, it's one thing to have it, but the demand is for us to obey it, isn't it? Maybe there's someone in the audience that you realize, of course, maybe like, not like times before, how trustworthy that Bible is. If you aren't living in harmony with it, why not? If we could help you tonight, we'd be delighted to do it. Maybe as an alien sinner, you find yourself so much in need, of course, of becoming a Christian. If we could help you tonight, that plan of salvation is something you can bank your whole eternity on. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must confess His name as a Son of God, and you must be baptized. If we could assist you in accomplishing those things tonight, let us know. But if you have been a faithful child of God, but tonight you're not... Maybe you have forgotten how special the Bible is. Why not come back to your first love? Again, make a statement of your commitment to it, to follow Jesus all the days of your life. If we could help you, we pray to God for you. We would only invite you to let us know the way we can help and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.